And welcome to this week's edition of An Organic Conversation, a show about food, ecology, stories from the land, recipes, nature, sustainability, interconnectedness, relationships, and life itself. We have such a fascinating topic for you today because it really has been quite difficult for many of us to pinpoint the problem or cause of this challenge. I'm speaking of allergies or sensitivities or intolerances or any other reactions to specific things we do eat or inhale. Today we are diving into the world of bodily reactions, not love as we so often do in this show, but rather the negative kind with a naturopathic doctor and expert on the topic. Allergies, what's your reaction? As we decipher the different forms and possible causes of allergies and what we can do about it. Today, here on An Organic Conversation, we're your hosts, Helga Helberg, Mark Mulcahy, and Sita Rani Palomar. Well, something that was fascinating to us about getting into this topic was how things can change over time with allergies, insensitivities, intolerances, you can start out with something and then it changes and goes away or vice versa. You ha you don't have something and then it comes on later. So speaking about something else that changes over time, <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about something recently, daylight savings time. And as we were preparing for the show, we were talking about Why the heck do we do this? What purpose does it serve? And each one of us had a different theory about what it was. I thought it had something to do with trying to help the farmers. And, and seriously, I thought this before I got into the food industry, but it just seemed to make sense that the farmers get up when the sun comes up and this is when they get their work done. And as the sun gets up at a different time, they would get up at a different time and change the time of day to do it. Helga, you thought something different. Well, yeah, <laughs> I thought it's uh, there's a big energy reason like that we save more time by using less energy or later lighting to to help the country. And Mark, and actually, I'm not that off, right, Mark? Um, well, here and so I actually uh, had read at one point in time that the barbecue industry lobbied for daylight saving time, and yeah, <laughs> right, and, and yet. If and in doubt, blame the barbecue industry. That's and yet, so funny. it's interesting. A band practiced last night. I asked the band, and different different people had different ideas of where it came from. Some people thought it was so that school kids wouldn't stand in the dark during a certain time of year waiting for the bus. and Or the barbecue. Or the, or the barbecue. Truck. And the interesting thing is the idea was first uh, brought up by an entomologist who actually wanted more daylight to go out and collect insects. Really? And this and George no. and George really? Hudson, who lived in New Zealand, was a shift worker, and he just always wanted more time after his work to go collect and, and study insects. And so, in 1895, he brought this idea, wrote a paper on it, and it kind of got bantered around uh, Christchurch and different parts of uh, New Zealand. And then, but where it took hold was in Germany in 1916. Of course, yes. Sorry. After World, you know, after <laughs> World War One, um, or just before World War One, and you know, during the, uh, and all of German Germans allies, Germany's allies, Austria, Hungary, uh, and they first enacted it, and then a year later, England and a lot of Western Europe enacted it, and the United States followed in 1918, and so um, originally it was to save coal. Right, so because so oh, energy, so yeah, good. to save energy, and then it kind of took off, and some companies countries adopted it, and others didn't, and then in the '70s it really took off big in Europe, in the United States to supposedly save energy. There, there's a lot of kind of back and forth on whether or not it really does save that much energy. 
to actually do this. Yeah, and we, we looked at the world map of which countries are participating, and it's fascinating that it's really just, quote-unquote, North America and um, Europe, and then a tiny sliver of New, New Zealand, of Australia, actually, not all of Australia. Yeah, just one, part of one it. Third. Uh-huh. And that is just about it, and right? Some, some countries in South America also, right? Yeah. Oh, only a small yeah. part of South America, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. And the interesting thing is, Arizona doesn't even do it, yes. or Hawaii, or Hawaii, or any. Yeah, Russia has done it and dropped it. China has tried it and dropped it. Um, Africa and all of Indonesia has never done it. <laughs> it's just just such a funny. It's a funny occurrence. <laughs> But we have it and we love it or don't. <laughs> well, there is a love-hate relationship with it because once in the year you get an extra hour of sleep and you're thrilled. Mm-hmm. And then once in the year you lose an hour of sleep and you're kind of frustrated about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So however you See, feel about it, it I, I just found it interesting. We have all these things that we just accept. You know, they things. just happen and we accept them and they and they affect our lives. and. Yet many times we don't even know why they occur. It's funny that there's no conclusive research out there that anyone could find of really why it makes sense still. right? There's no – the research that there, um, anyone says it's at, at best it's controversial. Mm-hmm. If not, it's a complete mm-hmm. <laughs> ridiculous notion. But whatever we can do for the bugs, the good ones, that's how it all started. <laughs> but maybe the barbecue industry. We'll, we'll <laughs> we will look in that further maybe. You're listening to an organic conversation. Thanks for bringing that to our attention, Mark. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Wilkay. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. <laughs> and today we're talking about another kind of reaction, um, the world of bodily reaction actions to the, to the unwanted things that we ingest, inhale, or come in contact with. Allergies, what's your reaction? What they are, where they come from, and what we can do about them. But before we dive into the topic fully, here's our weekly tip from the world of health and beauty. Here is Chef Sita and her holistic bite. Well, my friends, it is citrus time. That's right. That's the time when you can go out and get so many different kinds of oranges, grapefruits, pomelos, some of these exotic citrus that you look forward to in this window. Meyer lemons are here. And this is a great time to revisit a way to get bursts of bright flavor into your food. And that is with citrus zest. Every time I compost a citrus rind, I feel like it's a lost opportunity if I did not take the zest off at first because this is the place where the oils of the citrus live. The oils live in the skin and they add so much depth and dimension and really brightness to the flavor of your food. It's kind of like using an herb or a spice. And You can take your citrus zest and use it immediately or even save it and use it for the future. And I'm going to tell you how. This is the basic process for getting really good citrus zest. You want to start by rolling the whole piece of citrus to release some of those oils and juices to the the most outer layer of the skin and the peel. And this is exactly the part that you want to take because you don't want to take much more than just that blush of color that's on the outside. When you get beyond that orange or that yellow or that green in the instance of lime, you get to the white part, which is the pith. And the white part is 
bitter. I'm not saying it's not good for you, but it has a bitter flavor and that will come through if you use your citrus zest in some kind of food. So here's what you do. Hold the citrus in the palm of your hand and then take your zester, your microplane, your grater, whatever you use. You want something that's kind of small, that has small grates on it. And face that so that the underside is facing towards you so you can see what you're zesting instead of facing it away from you. Because then you won't know if you're getting too far beyond that upper layer. And you're going to apply just a little bit of pressure to peel that beautiful outside color off, this zest off. It's really that simple. You just shake it out. You can put it in your vinaigrettes, in your sauces. I love to use it in risotto. You can use it to make herb salts like thyme and um, and a nice sea salt and some lemon zest. So many creative ways to add this depth and dimension of flavor from the citrus that's in season and so delicious right now. And as I said, if you want to save it for later, if like me, you look at all of those rinds in your compost bin and you think missed opportunity, here's what you can do. Zest your citrus before you juice it and before you use it and compost the rinds. And then take that zest and lay it out on a paper towel or a kitchen towel and let it dry overnight. It will get dry enough so that it won't mold when you compact it into a container and you can put it into spice jars. And that way, when you want to add the flavor of zest, you don't need to go out and buy citrus because you already have all of this gorgeous citrus zest that otherwise would have ended up in your compost. So I hope you're inspired to get some new flavor into your food this season. And that was this week's Holistic Bite. Thank you, Sita. That's Chef Sita, a.k.a. Sita Rani Palomar. Zest. Mark, you were... Yeah, I think that's the best zest of... (laughs) (laughs) You can say tongue twister. (laughs) (laughs) The best zest advice you've ever given us. Thank you, Mark. Well, you know, actually, it reminds me of when kumquat season is here. You do this thing with kumquats where you rub them between your hands before you eat them because it releases that oil oil and makes them tender. Amazing. Little secrets. Yes, if you ever see a kumquat or get a get your hands on a kumquat and you just roll them, what is it? The pressure or the warmth or both? Maybe right, Mark. They, well, they I, just I, become. I've always thought it was the pressure, but it could be the warmth too. Yeah, but it, it, it completely becomes oily. The, it releases the oil in the skin, and you think that a small kumquat with with really thin skin can't have much oil. And it's amazing when you get that on your hands, and all day you have that kumquat scent flying around you, beautiful. Um, and then when you bite into it, they are so red because you broke the cell membrane and the juices are all free-flowing. Well, the right oil is sweet. Yeah. And so you're releasing the oil. Actually, you get the, a sweet <coughs> bite before you get a they tart kind of bite. explode then when you bite into it. So be careful. That's Comquas. Um, but, but I love the idea of having zest that's already zested. Yeah. Right? Because mm-hmm. I think that's the reason people don't zest. Right? It's like, oh, I'm doing this recipe. I don't feel like zesting. Right? It calls for a zest. I'm going to do a teeny little bit. But if you could go and grab some and and sprinkle it on there, you'd use more zest. You would. You would. Exactly. And it's a really easy flavor that you're you're actually almost throwing away anyway. If you're not zesting your citrus and you're just throwing those rinds away, you're losing that opportunity to add that flavor at any point. It doesn't cost you anything additional. And I I love that. It always surprises me that you can, even though it might be slightly different when you do it fresh than when you do it dried, but that you could do it and just keep them in a jar, let them dry out. And the moment you use them and reconstitute them, or put them in a dish, they still release that beautiful, zesty, acidy f- flavor to it. It's just amazing. It's nothing you have to do in that moment. You can just zest an entire lemon, right, and keep it for how long do they 
How long does that last? You know, with spices, you can usually keep them for a few months. It depends on how you store them. Dark glass, so you protect them from light in a cool place, so you protect them from heat. Uh, but you can get some you can get some time out of them. Excellent. Thank you, Sita. Allergies. What's your reaction? That's our topic today in this hour here on An Organic Conversation. What are allergies? What are the correct names for other reactions that we might have to things we ingest, inhale, or come in contact with? Where do they come from? And what can we do about them? We have an expert on this topic on the show with us, that and more when we come back right after the break. Stay tuned. Are you a chef, have a catering business or planning a party or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit earlsorganic.com. Spicely Organics offers more than 200 different organic spices and dried herbs to choose from. Classics like oregano and cumin, exotics like aji amarillo, and blends like tikka masala. Spicely helps nourish your body while embracing sustainable, eco-friendly, and ethical practices always. Take wellness into your own hands and creativity into your own kitchen. Spicely Organics, teas, spices, and dried herbs at your natural food store and online at spicely.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Wilkehi. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And our topic in this hour is allergies, reactions of the bodily kind of the unwanted type. Allergies, what's your reaction? What are allergies? What are the different kinds of reactions? Where do they come from and what can we do about it? And with us now is an expert on this topic, naturopathic doctor, and co-owner of Born Naturopathic Associates, who's joining us today from Alameda, California, Dr. Todd Bourne. Dr. Bourne, are you with us? Yes, I am. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us in this hour. Thank you for having me. And allergies are such an and kind of misunderstood often topic. Many of us have reactions, and uh, we're so glad that we can pick this hour with you and really dive into that world that you understand so well. Yeah, Dr. Bourne, you know, I was watching a commercial the other night. And I think many of us think of allergies. We see the the person sneezing or watery eyes or those types of things, or maybe we don't feel good, but they tend to get categorized into this pretty narrow zone. But there really are a lot of different classifications on how our reactions to things and how we react to things. Can you kind of walk us through the world of allergies and maybe some of the misunderstandings around them? Sure, I'll attempt to do that. Uh, there's kind of essentially two categories of allergies as far as food allergies and inhalant allergies are our environment. And uh, there's a misconception amongst the general public as well, I think, as many clinicians, is that 
there's food allergies, food intolerances, and food sensitivities. And not all are mediated by the immune system in general. So, for example, a food allergy can run anywhere from something mild for that person who maybe eats the shrimp and they get a little itchy, they get some hives, uh, all the way to something as far and extreme as anaphylaxis, which requires emergent attention. Those are mediated by the immune system. Uh, the classic example would be the child who eats the peanut uh, and their throat closes, they turn a little blue and they have trouble breathing. And those do need medical attention because anaphylaxis can be uh, very, very dangerous and people can die from anaphylaxis, actually. Uh, where a food intolerance uh, sometimes is mediated by the immune system, sometimes not, but in typically either an enzyme deficiency or an enzyme insufficiency. And the classic example of that would be lactose intolerance from the sugar found in cow's milk. And the classic kind of symptoms people get would be a little gas, a little bloating, uh, maybe a little diarrhea. So most food intolerances do tend to be relegated to just the gastrointestinal tract. Then the third portion of food allergies is really food sensitivities. And that typically is not mediated by the immune system. So it can have systemic symptoms. So these are much more difficult to diagnose, much more difficult to assess. Uh, but they, a good diet, diary, good history will let you know if it's more of a sensitivity versus an allergy versus intolerance. And sensitivities can produce some GI symptoms, uh, diarrhea, abdominal pain, gas, bloating, uh, as well as systemic uh, manifestations like headache, brain fog, fatigue, uh, uh, itching, uh, things of that nature. And that is typically not able to be diagnosed via blood tests where allergy and intolerances can. I think these distinctions also, are so important. I saw an advertisement recently that I think is being done by the Dairy Board where they're talking about, you know, so many people are now claiming that they have a dairy allergy, but in actuality, it's only, you know, this small percentage of the population. The thing that was hard for me about that is I feel like it almost dilutes the validity of the response that you're having if somebody is saying, well, the likelihood that you have an allergy is actually quite small, so you really shouldn't worry about it, and you can go ahead and keep eating these foods. It's leaving out the fact that there are these other two classifications, intolerances and sensitivities, and how those reactions are valid, and they and it's okay that you, that you feel that way and that you mm -hmm. maybe accommodate your diet in order to not experience those adverse reactions. You bring up a really good point. And, um, for example, dairy is a little bit complicated in that you have cow's milk, you have cheese, and you have yogurt. You'll have one patient that may react to cow's milk, but yet they don't react to, say, yogurt or cheese. And that's typically because twofold. Number one, the latter foods are a little bit fermented, so they have some probiotics. And also lactose content is taller. But there's also other proteins, other sugars in dairy, cow's milk, uh, that can cause reactions. So you kind of hit the nail on the head that people say, oh, well, it's okay unless it's really overt and you're having diarrhea or abdom severe abdominal pain, you might be able to eat it in moderation. And that's not always the, uh, the best advice in my, my experience and in my opinion. With us is Dr. Todd Bourne, naturopathic doctor and the owner of Bourne Naturopathic Associates, who's joining us from Alameda, California in this hour on allergies. In regard to the sensitivity, because I personally am dealing with some food sensitivities, can, can you one more time dive into the difference between intolerances, which are immune system reactions, and sensitivities? Are those not immune system reactions, or are those immune system reactions of a kind of lesser expressed kind? 
that's, that's a good question. Intolerance is the only really play of the immune system. It typically is the uh, enzyme issue. Uh, either it's not it's deficient in the individual or it's in an insufficient amount, i.e. it's not in the optimized uh basically release uh-huh. from wherever its its cell is. So people will maybe have anywhere from extreme symptoms to mild symptoms. Sensitivities uh, sometimes are mediated by the immune system, most of the time not. So we're not really sure uh, what is actually causing a lot of sensitivities in these food reactions. So when people say, I'm allergic to this food, uh, bring up to your prior point that yes, food allergies are typically a smaller subset, but these sensitivities to all of these foods uh, is a much greater sure. uh, portion of the population and people that we see in practice that typically mediated by the immune system. But we're not really sure what is going on uh, to people react in these ways where they can increase heart rate, they can get headaches, fatigue, uh, difficult thinking, difficulty concentrating. And that's typically a sensitivity to food, and just someone needs to be do a little bit of investigation to kind of clarify more of what's going on. Sure. I want to take full advantage of you because I, I do think my case <laughs> has, has an application to a really large group of the population. I grew up on bread. I'm German. That's all you get basically in German is bread and cheese and, and meat. And I never had a problem as far as I know. And coming to the United States... I noticed that there was something in my diet that had me react with some gastrointestinal problems or a little bit of a headache, just mild symptoms that were somehow related to my diet. It is somewhere in the wheat, that it's somewhere in the bread, that if I'm on a grain-free diet, I'm actually completely fine. And it's also fine when I'm back in Germany. I can eat as much bread as, you know, as I want to without any reactions. And as soon as I'm back in the United States, I, I'm reacting again after certain doses. Is Is that because of processing? Is that because I have a different detoxification going on when I'm in Germany because of the other foods I eat? What, how, how would you explain that, that somebody can be fine, then develop something, and then actually be able to differentiate between different types of that food? That's, that's a very good question. I hear this a lot from my patients that travel a lot, and I've traveled internationally, where they say, oh, I cannot handle caffeine, I cannot handle coffee, but yet I go to Italy or I go to France, <laughs> so I'm sitting there at 8 o'clock and drink an espresso, and I'm fine. When I come back here, I'm feeling agitated and anxious. What's the deal? And I don't have a whole lot of explanation for that, except maybe that someone's on vacation, so they're a little more relaxed, <laughs> so they're not paying attention to it. Uh, but there also, I do believe that uh, it is in our environment where uh, I, live, I spent six months in New Zealand uh, a number of years ago, and their food supply is so much pure than, say, the food supply in the United States, where you have a lot of GMO foods, you have a lot of highly processed foods, a lot of foods that have added gluten, for example, to sure. the product. Yes. Uh, gluten is, you know, is fine for many people, but for many people it causes problems. And uh, I think when we start adding all the extra additives and preservatives to our food, it can start causing problems that would not normally cause problems. And you'll see this quite a few people. With us is Dr. Todd Bourne as we are dedicating this hour to allergies, bodily reaction. Allergies, what's your reaction as we try to decipher the different forms and possible causes of allergies and what we can do about it here today and then again in conversation. Dr. Bourne, stay with us, please. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar.
Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. And we're back here to again a conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. Our topic in this hour is allergies. What's your reaction as we all, in one way or another, pretty much are affected by something? Most people have a sensitivity, at least, to some kind of food, coffee or wheat. And we are exploring what the story is about the differentiation between different reactions and what we can do about it. With us today is Dr. Todd Bourne, naturopathic doctor, who's joining us today from Alameda, California. So, Dr. Bourne, I still have more questions about what we were just talking about. <laughs> so, I've known people who have not been allergic to something and then 20 years into their life supposedly become allergic to something or intolerant or sensitive. I myself never had a problem being uh, stung by bees as a kid, stung several times, was at baseball practice one day, stepped on a bee. I swelled up, my throat wanted to close off, I had to be taken to the hospital. I've had people like what Helga's talking about who have been a, a sensitivity or an intolerance for most of their lives and then not have it. Is it tied emotionally? Is it, how can something like that happen? That's a good question. Well, the, the example you gave is there's a thing in immunology called priming in the immune system. So if someone does have a, a true anaphylactic, say they get stung by the bee, uh, nothing will normally happen the first time they get stung. It's because the immune system has never been exposed to that allergen or that particular protein, so it doesn't have any memory of that. Then the second bee sting, it says, oh, this is really dangerous, and now the immune system is essentially going haywire, and that's what an anaphylaxis reaction is, is that the immune system is not shutting off. And that's when life-saving uh, emergency measures need to be taken, like epinephrine, uh, diphenhydramine, which is over-the-counter Benadryl. Those are the kind of things that need to be implemented. As far as people developing allergies later in life, uh, a lot of things are at play there as far as genetics. I mean, we used to think you're born with your genes, you die with your genes, you're susceptible to your genes. Well, now what we realize is that genes turn on and off throughout your entire life. And diet and lifestyle play a huge role on mm -hmm. those genes turning on and off, as well as some of the emotional aspects that uh, you mentioned. 
and then as well as exposures to your environment, your inhalant, you know, the pets, the, the cat dander. And this is kind of how I explain it to my patients who come into my offices and say, you know, I never had any allergies my whole life, and now all of a sudden every single thing I seem to eat or breathe or no matter where I go, I'm constantly in discomfort. What is going on here? So I'd like to tend to give them somewhat of a metaphor and say, well, imagine a cup of water, and the cup is half full. And the cup is basically your immune system, and the water is everything you're exposed to in your life. And everything's in check, everything's in balance, you're okay, but then you throw on poor lifestyle choices, poor dietary habits, stress, uh, you know, pets the pollens, the trees, the grasses, you can see where this is going, eventually that cup overflows. And what the immune system used to keep in check is no longer keeping in check, and it's basically an overdrive. So now one becomes more and more reactive to more and more substances that they never did before because the body isn't seeing these benign substances now as being benign. So you are playing perfectly into our question that most listeners are, are curious about, in regard to clean, you know, cleanliness of diet, cleanliness of lifestyle, um, all that. It sounds like there's a big area where we can actually actively work with our reaction if it's not a genetic a real allergy where you need, or maybe even then, so, Sita, you had a... Yeah, so what can you do to alleviate your body's reactions and support yourself for a more healthy and balanced lifestyle? I know that some people are doing cleanses now. Exercise maybe helps to push out the impurities, the amount of water you drink, eating foods that support your immune system. But I don't know how um, sufficient these things are at addressing reactions. And I know that there are a whole host of other things. So how do you work with patients to help them alleviate these reactions? I try to start uh, from the very beginning, if I have that opportunity, actually going to, say, pregnancy. So if a woman comes in and they have allergies, they have eczema, they have asthma, you can actually have quite a few naturopathic uh, tools that you're disposable for interventions that have been proven in clinical trials to lower the probability of that newborn actually developing allergies and eczema. Wow, uh, that's what they call so atopic conditions later in life. So that's really qu another one. Another fact is C-sections. There's, there's a lot of things at play to make one more susceptible to having allergies later in life. Uh, as a matter of fact, the C-section rates from the CDC in 2011 showed that 32.8% of all births in the United States were via cesarean. Some of those are obviously very much warranted, but the overuse of cesarean sections has really done a role on uh, the rise of allergies, and studies have shown this, because as the baby passes through the pelvis and through the vaginal canal, that's where they're starting getting exposed to a lot of the mother's healthy flora, uh, this particular lactobacillus species. There's also the, the kind of the hygiene hypothesis where we are so obsessed with germs that we're keeping everybody in a bubble. We're not allowing our children to, uh, their children to play in the sandbox and play with others and, you know, be a kid, uh, which helps build the immune system. A third aspect of, say, prevention would be breastfeeding. A lot of women don't breastfeed as long as, as we used to, uh, or they, they don't, they stop at a little earlier. And then when I took immunology as a medical student, my immunology professor said the greatest gift a mother can give her child is her immunity. So through breast milk, all the mother's antibodies that she's developed throughout her life is passed through the breast milk onto the baby, further garnering greater uh, immune tolerance and building their immune system to not overreact. 
if I don't have that opportunity, say they're already symptomatic, it's a child, it's an adult, and now they have allergies, uh, in naturopathic medicine, we're trained in what's called tole causum, which means remove the cause. So it's not that palliative medicine isn't helpful, whether it's an antihistamine or a natural antihistamine like vitamin C or flavonoids or freeze-dried nettle and some of these other really common ones, is that I'm looking more for what are they reacting to. And some of these you can do via blood tests, uh, which are true allergies. Those ones can be tested via blood, whether it's going to be an inhalant like pet, dust mite, cat, dander, trees. You can actually test for those. Um, allergists sometimes do it via blood test. For the most part, they do skin prick tests. Uh, but they both are uh, just as efficacious as far as diagnosing what's going on. Another thing I do is uh, if it's more food-related or even if it's both, I will place them on an allergy elimination diet which many, many people are maybe aware of, and there's various ones out there, but the more common one, because this is really the gold standard to diagnose and assess food sensitivities and intolerances, is essentially removing a number of suspected foods from someone's diet for two to three weeks, and then they keep a diary of how they feel, and then they systematically challenge these foods one at a time, waiting 72 hours between each food challenge because there's a thing called delayed food sensitivities or delayed food reaction. If after 72 hours you don't react to that food, the probability of someone reacting is very small. So then you could consider that food safe. If they don't react, you move on to the next one. So now by the time we've done an allergy elimination diet and maybe run some blood tests where indicated, we have a really good idea of what is actually causing their immune system to be hypersensitive to. And allergists do this all the time. It's called subcutaneous immunotherapy, where the, the quote-unquote allergy shots, where you go in over a course of a certain amount of time, what you're allergic to, and you get uh, increasingly injected with more and more of that protein so your body calms down. There's another way of doing that, which is orally. It's just as safe. It's very inexpensive. It's just as effective and obviously a lot less painful. That's how I typically treat them. Have you seen, Dr. Bourne, that exercise and lots of clean water and strengthening the overall immune system that CETA was adding to the list, does that, does that actually have an effect? Can that help at least our reaction to it to be less severe, or is that a, f a fairly benign thing people can do? No, it's, it's a benign thing they can do, but very, very helpful for most people as far as cleansing, what, as long as it's a safe cleanse, because that can calm the immune system down. The whole point is to basically have the immune system induce some type of tolerance so it's not overreacting everything. So um, I'm a big fan of, you know, trying to eat as organic uh, as much as possible. It can be expensive for some people, so at the very least I promote, you know, the dirty dozen, definitely purified water, cleansing, exercise. Those are all very good things. I'm not a big fan of, quote-unquote, strengthening the immune system because part of the issue here is that the immune system is already in overdrive. So when someone would go to their health food store and they start buying immune-stimulating herbs or other nutrients that are immune-stimulating, it's actually making matters worse for the most part because the immune system is already overreacting. Wow, how interesting. Yeah, so, that's interesting. So it's really more about kind of building the tolerance, and then that's where someone like myself or... Uh, um, an allergist would come in. And the Dirty Dozen, of course, the list of the 12 most sprayed and 
hopefully organic, if if at all possible, vegetables that you should avoid buying non-organically. Did I get that right? <laughs> it is a little <laughs> inverted. <laughs> <laughs> Dirty doesn't the list get, yeah, the list of the vegetables yeah. you want to avoid eating non-organically if you can. Yes, and it changes every year. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, of the pesticide load. And, and, and yeah. their own internal study showed that if you actually avoid the top fifteen of their full list, you can avoid approximately eighty percent of all the chemicals that are used pesticides, herbicides, etc., in produce in the United States. That's so such a great statistic. For a lot of people, statistic. just knowing those top 15 is great. Wow. And again, if you look up Dirty Dozen Environmental, environmental Working, working group. group, great list, changes every year, um, analyzes the most sprayed common vegetables that we eat in our diet that, if at all possible, should be avoided or eaten organically. And that's Dr. Todd Bourne in this hour on allergies. What's your reaction? Thank you so much, Dr. Bourne, for your amazing breadth of knowledge and for sharing that with our listeners today. For more information, I do want to give a shout out to your website. That's bornnaturopathic.com. For more information, how else can people learn from your wisdom? I write quite a bit, and then my publications end up getting put on our website so people can kind of read about things that way and various health topics and uh, but we're readily accessible via our website for questions. Okay, wonderful. So more information on the whole world of naturopathic health and allergies specifically because we are getting into those months now coming up where many people experience symptoms again. Dr. Todd Bourne, thank you for joining us today. Uh, wonderful to have you. Great pleasure. Thank you for making the time to be with us today. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you, Dr. Bourne. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Sure. Thank Again, that, that, that website is bornnaturopathic.com. That's B-O-R-N naturopathic.com. And we are staying with the dirty dozen. Actually, we are staying with the opposite. We are staying with the clean dozen, <laughs> which has been Mark's world for many decades, the world of produce and what's happening in the world of produce, that and more when we come back right after the break. Stay tuned. Organics emphasis has long been on the natural health benefits of organic spices, and now Spicely is excited to share more health benefits with the introduction of their hand-blended organic teas. Choose from black, green, white, mate, oolong, pu'er, and herbals blended with their signature spices like vanilla rooibos, sweet turmeric, and honey lavender. Spicely Organics, teas, spices, and dried herbs at your natural food store and online at Spicely.com. Produce is ever-changing, seasons coming and going. At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons, so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com.
And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helber. I'm Mark Bouquet. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. And as promised, here is the update from the world of healthy, yummy produce, fruits and vegetables. Our very own Mark Mokehi with What's in Season. <laughs> and of course, um, because it's What's in Season, we have Earl Herrick, the voice of the San Francisco produce market, on the phone with us. Uh, welcome, Earl. Hey. Hello, hello. How y'all doing? Hey, Good. Earl. Hey, Earl. Great to have you on. <clears throat> Everybody, you know, I mean, we're seeing citrus everywhere. And, of, of course, a majority of it's very good right now. Uh, mm. I'm eating some really nice stuff. I had a TDE. Uh, yeah. would, uh, it's a cross between three different tangerines, but very nice the other day. Mm, but yeah. that's not what we're talking about today. That's uh, right. Um, it's actually kind of an unofficial opening of the season, and I'm not talking about pitchers and catchers, you know, or or, the, or spring training, um, even though we could. Even, yeah, even though it's simultaneous. I'm actually talking about the unofficial start of tropical fruit season. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great time because it, it serves as this great segue between the citrus and just before we get into the beginning of the big uh, local berry spring and summer season so this is really the time to to allow yourself to expand in some areas that perhaps you haven't um right now some great things to enjoy are mangoes now mangoes are almost a year-round commodity they're a global commodity they're everywhere and we get to enjoy uh, with our proximity to mexico and of course costa rica and ecuador and peru and we're experiencing right now a transition from the peruvian season into the Mexican season. So it travels north like lots of seasons do. And we get to enjoy three primarily primary varieties. The Tommy Atkin, which is a big, you know, colorful kidney shaped, uh, a lot of flesh, wonderful uh, orange inside. And then also the Kents, which are not really high color so much, but boy, do they cut beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the, one of my favorites is the Atofo which is also known as the manila, uh, you know, the very pale greenish, uh, when they get very beautiful and ripe, they're, they're a deep orange, uh, excuse me, yellow color. And those are, have a particularly kind of very intense, high sweet, high sugar. And that's, don't, don't miss out on that one. They're, they're generally uh, smaller, but wonderful to enjoy. But is just that variety also called the champagne mango? Yes, yes mm -hmm. it is. Oh, man, that mm -hmm. is a good and, mango. And, and just starting. I mean, really, what Earl's talking about, you've probably mostly been seeing the Tommies and the Kents, right? Yeah. But the, the Altafo is just getting started. So, you know, I mean, Earl and I, actually, I think that he's actually jumping the gun a little bit. But I, well, as, as, far as, my, as far as my taste buds are concerned, I never, I'm, I'm getting, I never eat March uh, Altafos, only April. Um, I'm, I'm getting tired of apples. That's too long gone. So, yeah, I, I could be. Um, and, and they are good. And, and Earl... Is, what gets people excited, I think, I mean, you just heard the, the excitement in Sita's voice, is we all have a certain relationship with mangoes now. 20 years ago, that probably wasn't true because there weren't as many varieties on the market. And now we, we have them nearly all year long. There's, they, they have different varieties in different times. And so you really can experience something different about a mango during the different months. You know, one of my favorites is actually Altafos have been my favorite for years. And now that there's Keats that come ah. out in September that they're actually grown yeah. in California, yeah. 
I think I'm actually changing my produce mind again, which is really bizarre. But yeah, altafos have been my favorite for years, and then, you know, and I'll be looking forward to those in about another month. Um, but what else is there out there? What else can we look forward to? Pineapples. Pineapples are wonderful right now. You know, we get major production out of uh, Brazil and Costa Rica, and of course Mexican. Uh, the co- uh, and of course, in the in the dead of the summer. There, in outside sands, you can get some Hawaiian organic ones mm. also. Mm-hmm. There, the supply is really low in Hawaiian. The, the real estate is just too expensive to grow uh, a lot of pineapples. But for us, or for me personally, the Costa Rican is is the one to enjoy. It's it's in, it's grown in the interior of that small Central American island. They they have more consistent uh, weather there than the Mexican. So I think they're. I, I think you get a better consistent flavor. They get uh, more consistent heat, less highs and lows, and then they cut wonderful. And um, in, in the years that I've been doing it, I think the, the Costa Rican is the best pineapple day in and day out. If you can't get that, you know that special Hawaiian pineapple. That is really good information to have about which because you yeah. people want to know how to get a good flavor. This is not something that's quite so obvious I think as some other fruits. It's really easy to well, go, I mean, especially when it comes to selection. It's easy for me to go and pick a ripe mango because I know what I'm looking for. I know what to yeah. feel for but how in the world oh, <laughs> this is You're definitely the question for the two I am going to ask it. How do you pick a yeah, good it's pineapple? It's really hard. Uh, Mark, I, are you, I, I, think, I think we go over this every year, don't we, Mark? But I can't even remember yeah. the color. Is it? Does it have to be yellow, or does yellow mean un, mean unripe? And yes, uh, there's a certain bouquet to it, and I think you can rip out the the stem and the top, or the, the what is the it called? The leaves something. on the top if yeah. they come off loose. But I mean, really, out of five purchases, there's maybe, if you're lucky, one good, really, really perfect pineapple. How what, do you how do you do it? Well, you know, for me, if I'm going to spend and you're going to spend good money on a on a good sized pineapple. Yeah. It could be five bucks or more. Yeah. Uh, for me, I'm going to pass unless I'm really for sure. And for that, I got to have a bouquet, um, and, th- and that's not always available. Uh, you know, they're, they're shipped. Uh, you know, depending from where they come, they can get shipped, and, and if they're not room temperature, they're not going to have that floral scent. Mm-hmm. I also look for the, the 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 size of it that it's fairly uniform from top to bottom, and the and the segments. That, that make up the pineapple, I look for a uniform sizing there, which generally means it's, it's taken a while to ripen. But I've also talked to a lot of people that want well to, salespeople and, and some growers that say they're, none of those things necessarily matter. And that's been my experience too. I've had some that are dead green, I, they have no floral, I cut them and boom, they explode with flavor. It's, it's a tough one to do. Just try to use my nose the best I can. But it's one of those items I know you guys say, you know, try it. If, if you want to buy five apples, have the produce guy cut into an apple, give you, mm-hmm. give you a quarter or whatever, an eighth, and you can try it. And you know yeah. that most likely the apples around it will roughly be in that vicinity of flavor. And, and Mark is shaking his head. Okay. It's hard to um, do with pineapple. Yeah, anyway, you can't, you can't do it with every apple. But at least you get an idea of where that flavor for that variety is in that moment to some degree better than not doing it, Mark. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but you don't you don't do that. You don't do that with with an eight dollar pineapple. Or yes, would you, you do. You do, Mark. Absolutely, absolutely. I just need to go produce seems shopping. So with you. rude, yeah. Because you, right? you do. Because here's amazing. the deal. Here's the deal. Okay, <laughs> so you're willing to do it on an apple that's going to cost you seventy five cents. Yeah, no, it's but silly. you're not willing to do it on something that's going to cost you ten dollars. 
and I and I just look at it. It's like first of all, I feel like it's the produce uh, company's responsibility to have it sampled out there so you know what it tastes like if they don't want to cut into an eight dollar pineapple. And if they yeah. don't, and you're about yeah. ready to spend that money then your produce clerk should be trained well enough that they can actually pick them to the best of their ability and they'd be willing to try two or three. I think it's a size oh. issue because if it's, you know, if well, it's an course. apple or a pear or whatever, you you know, one one apple that they lose if it's not great and you don't buy it. But of course you're right, it's it's five, six, eight dollars for a really, really, really good organic pineapple and that's a total novelty for most of us. And when you do it, you do you do want to make sure it's really excellent. So there's no other way than cutting into one or two and finding you know, if you inform, the, again, we go back to getting that relationship with your produce person, but if you say, hey, I want to try this, cut it in half, I will guarantee I will buy this. If, if it's, if it's good. good, yeah. And so, you, you know, you, you develop that relationship of trust and, and um, you know, that person, if, if day in and day out or, or week in and week out you're doing it and you actually do what you say, yeah. You know? And it's true, the more expensive, the more we should do it. Because if you bring that home and you just spend six bucks, it really hurts. If that's not a perfect piece of fruit. I have the same issue with cherimoyas, right? As everyone yes, knows who listens yes. to the show, it's my favorite fruit. And whenever I'm at the checkout, people ask me, what is that? It's it's one of those totally underrated, unknown. They look like gigantic dragon eggs. Green, little bumpy. Yeah, like a but small coconut. Really heavy oh, for yeah. its size. White flesh if you don't weigh too long. Some people say you know, they need to be really soft. I don't like them that soft. They, uh, I feel like they start fermenting. When they have just a little gift, just a tat, just like a still somewhat unripe avocado, then mm-hmm. they're perfect mm-hmm. for me. And and then it's like bubblegum eating. I mean, it's, it's literally the most delicious piece of fruit that I've ever had. And I never had them in my life before I came to the States. And those are expensive. If you buy them organically, yeah. I get maybe one or two a season because it's, it's a $10 item if you buy a heavy one. And if that's not good, and I can't get myself to asking the produce manager to cut into a cherimoya. Well, it, it just feels seems rude. But anyway, yeah, I agree. We we need to get to that place because then you have no waste, right? The money you save is just mm-hmm. and and cherimoyas are just starting, Helga. Yeah, so just right to let you know, I had an, an early, excellent one yesterday. Uh, he had an excellent one, and here and here's really the deal on it. If it helps you, everybody to feel better about this, is what you like might be different than what somebody else is like. So you might like a sweeter pineapple. Someone might like a little more acid. Someone might like a cherimoya that's a little riper where you like what I consider not as ripe. Uh-huh. And so you're creating an opportunity for that produce person to actually sample out and create that relationship that Earl's talking about. And the real deal is half, most people aren't going to ask. And so if you put if you put that half a pineapple out there, and it's good, but not great, someone's going to buy it. And, oh, yeah. and probably be okay with it. It's just that I think people should be a little bit more particular about the food they put in their mouth. Individuality. Yes. And, 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 and also, you know, you're doing that produce person a service, I think. Many, there is definitely understaffed uh, produce departments all over the place, and they not, they're not fully educated. And when, they, you give that, when you want them to sample it, you're, you're letting them have a sample, too. And some of these people don't even, they're not necessarily eating what they're putting out. So I say go for it every time. Yeah, you do train the, the you know, the produce staff, and they actually love to share. Every time I've done it, I, I've never gotten a frown. Um, they really, well, there you go. I need to do it for six, eight dollar big pieces, pieces of, of fruit. tropical fruit. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Earl. I'm Yummy. excited for tropical season. Look yeah. forward to having some pineapple with you. Oh, yeah. Well, lovely. 
probably, you know, cut them all up. That's always fun cutting those babies up. It is fun to We're cut almost them. out of time, but I do want to ask, <laughs> what is, what's the specialty about pr uh, uh, tropicals? Is it the sugars or is it the novelty of not having them year-round? Or In one sentence, what is, why, why are they so special? I think it has to do with a, a many fa three main factors. One is that you don't see it a lot. It, it's got uh, some stuff is funny shaped. It's not a shape you see every day. And I think it has a particular tropical sweetness to it. Yeah, it's the sun, right? We yeah, get, so we're it's, getting it's the sunlight there. It's a little there. off center. It's a little <laughs> unusual. I mean, before I moved out to California, I never had a cherimoya, a pineapple, or a mango. Right. Wow. So bingo. Bingo. Um, they're just a little, <laughs> little off center. Yes. <laughs> Let the sun in. Thank you, Earl. You're Wonderful welcome. to have you. Thanks, Earl. We'll we talk to you next topic. week. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Mark, too, for bringing Tropicals into our vicinity. It's about time. I'm looking forward to it. And to so see fun. the excitement from both of you about <laughs> these things is just tropicals. makes me smile. I mean, I mean, yeah. And all the local food movement, which I really, of course, completely promote and support. And oh, there's there's a cultural exchange when you get a, a Hawaiian pineapple or, you know, something Costa from Rican South America. Pineapple. Exactly, Costa Rican pineapple, because you know somebody grew it there, and if it's fair trade and organic and... I don't know. It's just so beautiful, and mm -hmm. it's such a novelty. It's lovely. <laughs> Love it. Well, that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. Thanks for listening. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate producer, Kristen Ponger. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to iTunes or anorganicconversation.com. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, please follow us on facebook.com forward slash an organic conversation. We are your hosts, Helga Helberg, Mark Mulcahy, and Sita Rani Palomar. And we'll be back right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then. Bye. Bye-bye.